Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. My guest today is Liam Murphy, Professor of Law and Philosophy at New York University. Liam works in legal, moral, and political philosophy and has written about multiple topics, including moral duties in non-ideal theory, the foundations of tax policy, private law theory, international law, and the nature of law. And he was also my doctoral supervisor, something I will always be thankful for. So hi, Liam. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Felipe. Great to be talking with you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk. So let me start with uh, a book you wrote on property and tax theory called The Myth of Ownership. It's been a very influential book on uh, discussions in tax policy that you wrote with Tom Nagel. And in that book, you offer a theory of justice in taxation, which is very much connected to your conventionalist view of private property. So can you tell us a bit about that view about private property and how you think it clarifies questions of tax justice? Sure. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing. That book is called The Myth of Ownership. Uh, that was suggested to us by an editor at the press because she thought it would be, you know, attention grabbing, which I guess it is. But we, in the book, really took for granted conventionalism about property. So the title's a little misleading if it suggests that we're going to actually make any arguments about property. And we didn't. We just um, took it as a background assumption that property was conventional in the sense that there was there were no natural rights to property. There's no morality of property that the law of property has to be responsive to. And we use that as part of our argument for the main point in the book, which is that it's not appropriate to think about tax justice in terms of a distribution of burdens as measured against the baseline of pre-tax income. So what's conventionalism got to do with that argument? Well, it just means that your pre-tax income is really just an accounting figure because when you're looking at what you're uh, legitimately entitled to by a practice of uh, recognizing and enforcing uh, property rights, you're looking at a legal practice. And so you should look at the entirety of the legal practice. Um, there's, it, it's artificial to look at this one line on the tax return and say, hey, that's what I really am morally entitled to. No, what you're really morally entitled to is the output of the system as a whole, and that would be your uh, post-tax income. And that's uh, the conclusion of the book is, well, the argument of the book is that uh, you have to think about tax justice in terms of the distributions of outcomes, the distribution of uh, net uh, benefits and burdens from uh, living living in a, in a particular state. It's also true that, that we could have made our argument about um, the irrelevance of pre-tax income, and we, we did address this to some extent. Even if someone were to come along with a Lockean theory of property rights, and they say, well, there really is such a thing as a morality of property. We would then point out that no existing um, economic system that we know of actually gives legal entitlement to what would count as moral property rights on the Lockean theory. 
And so if you're going to try and make um, pre-tax income relevant, you'd have to redo uh, the practices that we actually see to try and make pre-tax income somehow match what you would have in a Lockean world where everybody is getting what they're morally entitled to. Um, so in, in, in a way, it's, it's to say you'd have to entirely redo your economy uh, along the lines of some kind of libertarian fantasy before you could make it the case that uh, pre-tax income was relevant. So I'm going on, but it's, it's central, property is central to the argument uh, about taxes, but we didn't make the argument that property was conventional in the book, and that ticked some people off. <laughs> we just assumed it. That's one of the reasons in, in a recent article, which is about private law, I talk about both property and contract in a way as a kind of a prequel to the book to try and justify the assumption that property is conventional. It's interesting that you mention the Lockean view because you're right that in the book you take it for granted that we would all agree that property is just a social convention. And from that it follows, as you say, that then the law of property has no kind of normative priority and it's just one more of the institutions that help to constitute this social practice, along with tax law and along with other legal institutions. But there's one type of libertarian view. I, I, I'm actually not sure if libertarian is the right word, but you, you call it everyday libertarianism, which is different from a Lockean view, right? So yes. how do you think everyday libertarianism confuses us when we talk about tax justice or about the justice of legal institutions in general? Great. So... Everyday libertarianism is a sort of a, a disease. <laughs> we diagnose um, an attitude or a kind of set of common sense moral assumptions that we think all of us um, are susceptible to. And it's a little bit like a, a critique of ideology um, but there's no claim that there's any lying going on or any active and active um, misleading going on. It's that if you live in a capitalist economy where um, you get told what your, your wage or your salary is and um, you uh, take, take for granted that that is your entitlement unless the tax law is changed, it's, I mean, that subject to tax will be your entitlement unless the tax law, uh, unless tax law is changed. It's very hard not to start feeling as if you really do own your pre-tax income. And similarly, just with um, possessions, you know, the idea that actually all matters of ownership are to be judged according to the justice or otherwise of the convention that establishes the ownership. And so we don't in any sort of real natural sense own, I don't know, the portrait of my grandmother, the one valuable thing I own. Um, that just seems hard to live with. And so everyday libertarianism rejects the real thing, rejects the Nozickian view that um, taxation is a violation of rights. Compulsory taxation is a violation of rights. 
it takes for granted that we need taxation in order to pay for uh, public goods um, and so on. But it has this sort of feeling that every time I'm taxed or every time I'm taxed more than I was before, there's a, a burden of justification which lies in the fact that something that's really mine is being taken away from me. Um, and we think that everyday libertarianism is, I think it's possibly impossible to eradicate. I think um, as a general matter of public political perceptions, it's very hard to accept that we don't really own anything in the moral sense of individual entitlement to individual buckets of resources or objects. What we own is determined by law. And if we're going to figure out whether what we own is what we should own, we look at the justice of the overall system. We, we can't insist on particular, um, particular moral ties. So everyday libertarianism, I think, is, is, um, is hugely important. And I'm actually, I should say my wife, Sibylla Fisher, came up with the term. And it's one of the terms from the book that's, that's, had, uh, that's had legs. Um, so I'm pleased about that. Do you think there's a, a form of everyday libertarianism about contracts too? Yes, I do. I think um, uh, thoughts about the right to freedom of contract, that, that this should be a right, so that limitations on contractual opportunities, for example, can you buy or sell bodily organs, you might in the end conclude that such limitations are uh, justifiable, but once again, you'll think there's a there's a hurdle to be overcome. The default of I should be able to contract about anything I want is not just a default um, that comes out of some recognition that the people in the best position to figure out what's going to make their lives go better um, are the people whose lives <laughs> we're talking about. So as a good sort of instrumentalist rule of thumb, we shouldn't mess with private ordering. That's not what everyday libertarian is telling us. Everyday libertarianism is telling us that I have a right to exchange my property and my services um, uh, at will. So it's the, it's the contract or promissory equivalent of what's going on with, on the property side. Great. So since we moved into contracts, you have also uh, labeled, labeled yourself as a conventionalist about contracts. So in general, how would you describe your view about the normative foundations or the justification of contract law? So it's really interesting, um, just as a matter of uh, intellectual sociology, um, and if you get old enough in this business, you see fashions <laughs> change dramatically. About 30 years ago, I would say almost everybody in the sort of Anglo-American analytic philosophy world was a conventionalist about property, and they were also conventionalists about promise and contract. Um, and they're both, on, on both uh, scores, I think, 
course, I'm not talking about absolutely everybody, but the majority view was the Humean view. The Humean view was that is that we can't make sense of either property or promise as natural moral phenomena. And he explained that in terms of the, the need for motives, um, natural motives that uh, we could pick up on uh, to decide someone has a virtue. We don't have to put it in virtue theoretical terms. Um, the, the human point just is that you don't get any rights and wrongs of property or contract until after a convention has been established, and he called it an artificial convention. Notably, he didn't think it was unnatural or unnecessary because he thought that these conventions were essential to human society. But they were artificial in the sense that they were artifice. They're created by people. You create a convention around stable possession and uh, commitment, promise, and the morality of, the, of promise and property comes from the good that the conventions do. So I'm old fashioned, I guess, because I still, I still think that, that those views are right on both scores on property and contracts. And when it comes to promises, it's even harder, I think, for people um, who aren't philosophers to really accept it because it does seem that when two people make promises to each other, they're doing something that you can make sense of without looking at a general social convention. Um, if I make a promise to you to meet you at uh, a certain time and I break it, it does seem to be a perfectly familiar sense in which I've wronged you, I've, harm, I've, 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 I've let you down, um, and I've let you down, and that's really most of what matters in this situation. Surely it can't be that what matters in this situation is that I've done something that's out of line with a conventional the convention that has social value. So, um, but that's what I think is going on. I think in the case of promises, um, uh, especially, I should, I don't think I'll say especially in the case of, in the pure case of promising, where we don't yet have reliance in the picture, there is no wrong to the promisee from a breach of promise. There is only a violation of the rules of a valuable social practice. So it's important to distinguish between cases where there's reliance and cases where there isn't, because where there's reliance, there is something real that's happened. If in failing to meet you, I've caused you to lose a lot of money. There's a certain sense in which I have imposed that loss on you. We could discuss it. I think it's a tricky topic, actually, reliance losses. But I think that's a very different situation where the only complaint you have against me is that I didn't keep my promise. Call that the pure case where there's no reliance, only non-performance. Um, I think that there is no wronging done. Um, it may still be the wrong thing to do, or as I would prefer to put it, it's still a bad disposition for me to have, to be inclined to violate my promises, but that's because the practice in which people are disposed to keep their promises has social value. How does that conventionalist view about promising impact the question about the normative foundations of contract law? How, how what, if you're right. a conventionalist about promising, what do you think that would 
mean for your view about the normative foundations of contract law? So, um, and I recall now that that's the question you asked me, and I, yeah, I, I, I gave the first half. It's okay. Half, which is, first, let's do promise. The, um, but if we now turn to contract, I think you could have the view about contract that it is simply independent from the morality of promise. And I think that some instrumentalists about contract law, by which I mean theorists who would say we evaluate and justify contract law in terms of the good social effects that it produces, some people who have that view about contract law may not agree with me about promising. They may say, oh, no, I don't agree with you that it isn't wrong for me to break my promise uh, in a case where nobody's relied. But I just don't think contract law is about promises. I think it's something else. And you, you get that position sometimes, um, uh, especially outside the common law world, because it's, it's, it's mostly in the common law world, as um, I'm sure you know better than I do, that there's this very close tie within the legal understanding between contracts and promises, especially in the US, actually. It's in the US that the restatement starts with a contract is a promise. Um, so that's one possible view. What my views about promises does rule out is a view which says the point of contract law is to uphold the morality of promise. So on a certain interpretation of Charles Freed's position, the point of contract law is to enforce promises because promises must be kept. He has a sentence that suggests that view somewhere like uh, contracts must be uh, kept because promises must be kept or something like that. It also is a bit in tension with a more sophisticated view um, such as uh, that of Sean Schifrin, who I see was a recent guest on your show, who doesn't say the point of contract law is to enforce promises, but contract law should be compatible with and not interfere with the morality of promising. And she has a non-conventionalist view about promising. So um, she thinks there are moral constraints on the content of contract law that come from the natural morality of promising and my conventionalist view about uh, about promising uh, would reject that. I think there, there are some interesting constraints on the content of contract law that comes from the need for a kind of um, convergence or lack of conflict between the conventional practice of promise and the content of contract law. But that's different because that's compatible with both practices changing dramatically. In other words, uh, no natural moral constraints on the content of contract law. Um, where would I put my just my positive case for contracts? The found it's it's instrumental um, with the main benefit of contract law being that it adds to the benefits we get from a practice of promising the ability of someone to be assured that the promisor will actually perform. So the availability of a remedy gives people reason to enter into agreements that they otherwise, for want of trust in the other party, wouldn't enter into. I think that's the primary 
justification of contract law. Great. So if I think about what most American listeners would think about when you say you have an instrumentalist view, I think most of them would think about uh, the view of uh, legal economists who basically think about contract law as an incentive device or as um, a series of mechanisms that allow parties and therefore society to maximize their gains from uh, voluntary agreements. Uh, how does your view differ from that standard view uh, that legal economists have? This is a, a pet peeve uh, of mine, not a peeve as against you, because I know you don't say what I'm going to express my irritation about. You'd be the last person to say it. But there are people who think that you're either a moralist of some kind about private law or you're an economist. And yes, you get, I you get, I. You have the same peeve, I think. I yeah, I I, I think I carry that peeve with me after having been supervised by you, and I get and I get irrationally angry, just like you, whenever I see that uh, opposition made. Oh, I'm sorry to have uh, caused that irrational disposition. In any event, the peeve is this: um, you know, there's one thing to have an instrumental view, which is to see the point of a. a a legal order, a legal system um, uh, in terms of bringing about some good outcomes. It's another to have this incredibly constrained view of what counts as good outcomes, which is what we get from welfare economics. You've got to remember, welfare economics is not just utilitarian. If um, It's applying a conception of economic efficiency because of the refusal of welfare economics economists to engage in uh, interpersonal comparisons of welfare. So it's it's not just that it's limited to welfare, it's this incredibly constrained account of what welfare is, namely, relevantly in this, in this context, it's, it, it boils down to cost-benefit analysis. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that I don't think cost-benefit analysis really measures anything of moral uh, relevance because it doesn't take into account diminishing uh, marginal value of money. It's not a good measure of welfare. I would be much happier with the utilitarian position, which acknowledges that we have problems in figuring out how to compare different people's levels of welfare, but says, along with uh, Amartya Sen, who once wrote, it's better to be roughly right than precisely wrong, you go for the roughly right outcome and you try and promote total amounts of welfare. That's the first disagreement I would have with the economic approach. The second is that welfare totals isn't the only thing that matters. The distribution of welfare matters and other things matter too that would affect the way we design contract law. So we might say, for example, that um, certain kinds of agreements uh, shouldn't be enforced because even though they are consistent with a broadly just pattern, distributed pattern of outcomes, they would represent some kind of exploitation of one person by another, some kind of unconscionability doctrine limitations on what kinds of uh, contracts can be enforced is certainly part of what I would regard as a sufficiently capacious account 
of the values that we want contract law to serve. We wanted to promote welfare. We wanted to do it in a distributively just way. We want to do it in a way that preserves people's dignity. We want to do it in a way that protects people from exploitation and manipulation. It's just a far more capacious view. Uh, difficult to give, you know, precise answers on any particular question. For example, you know, what's the right view about punitive damages or something like that? The economist will give you um, a simplified model in order to provide answers for that. And I think that's one reason why the economic approach is um, popular because it looks it looks as if it's going to be possible to give far more detailed answers on a whole range of detailed questions. I just don't think that's available to us. I think we have to do the best we can being roughly right, adjusting the law as, as we go with a, as I say, uh, a broad set of values that's relevant to the, to the design of contract law as, a, as an institution. I agree. I mean, this this actually leads me to something I've often wondered about, which is what are the political implications of these views? So one way in which you could think about this is if you're a conventionalist about property and, and promises and you're an instrumentalist about these legal institutions, mm -hmm. that you might read that as leading you to a very, you know, to use the American... Uh, usage uh, to a very progressive view, right? Because you could say everything is up for grabs when we're thinking about how to change property regimes, how to change the rules of contract law. But on the other hand, and you know, this, I think this is a theme that you can see in Hume, if you're a conventionalist, you're also very much aware of the fragility of the institutions, right? And that if you change them uh, too much or too often, the conventions might unravel or they might, th their ability to serve the good might be uh, negatively affected, that you need a certain stability. And it, it, these, you know, I, I see a very direct path from a conventionalism about property and contracts to a relatively conservative view about how often, how much you should change these legal institutions. And I, I see the same, actually, the same duality or the same tension in libertarian views, right? So there's a way in which a libertarian could be seen as very much favoring the status quo, as basically saying, you know, our legal institutions just reflect our natural rights. And so if you start redistributing, that's wrong because it violates natural rights. I think that's actually the way in which libertarian premises are actually used in American political discourse. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you're a thoroughgoing libertarian, and I think this is something you've noted in your work, uh, you would be happy to radically change yes. the rules and institutions that we have so that they actually capture what's naturally or pre-legally right, right? So you know, if you think about the uh, you know colonialism and the violent expropriation of Aboriginal peoples in America, you would be very excited about the prospect of radically changing mm -hmm. the distribution of entitlements in the U.S., given that history, if you were actually committed libertarian. So how do you think about the political consequences of adopting one view or the other, given that it seems that both types of views lend themselves to very different political implications? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so Hume, as you know, just 
assumed that the conventions that we derived at had gotten it essentially right, and he was mainly explaining explaining how that was, you know, um, and he ends up justifying things such as, you know, the um, greater moral importance of female uh, chastity compared to male chastity. And, and I think that's a good example to think about because it is a danger of the conventionalist view that you could just think these practices are as they are because they've worked well for us and any tinkering uh, would just mess things up and we'd be in a worse place. Um, but sometimes there are aspects of the practice that are clearly serving the interests of some people rather than others. And I think uh, the example of human chastity is one such practice. And I think similarly, when it comes to something like taxation, we have this, um, at least for recent decades, it's not, if you go back a bit further, there was quite a, 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 what would be considered radical tax rates in this country in the 40s and 50s. But we have this sort of settled view that you can't go too crazy when it comes to taxation. Um, and I think this is where convention, conventional attitudes merge with a dangerous ideology, which is to say a set of views, practices, which do serve the interests of some at the expense of others. So I think the hostility to even taxing the capital income of the richest Americans, an idea that was floated uh, recently, it lasted for a couple of days. The idea wasn't to tax the wealth of the richest Americans, it was just to get at their capital income through um, you know, evaluating assets on an annual basis came with a sort of a whiff of radical, you know, destabilizing kind of practice, right? But I, that's, that's a mistake. Now, the question is, how do we draw the line between conservatism that is actually just perpetuating an injustice and conservatism, which is protecting the whole thing from collapse? And I think the latter kind of conservatism has, has never been, you know, growing up in stable times, as I did in a stable country, has never been central to my own political outlook, but it certainly is now after living through the last five more years. And so if I look to democracy and the rule of law, the protection of these things and the fundamental importance of that, even at the, even at the expense of let's suppose lessening your chances of moving dramatically towards a more egalitarian society. I think the pr protection of those things can hardly be overestimated. How do you make the argument? That's important. Continuing with protection for, of, of the, you know, super returns to the rich. No, that's something that we should get involved in and we should change. I don't know, I don't have a clear sort of general uh, story to tell about that. I think it's very much piecemeal and that makes it unsatisfactory for a lot of people. I think a lot of people would like 
matters of uh, legal and, and political right to be um, something that you could just establish through good argument and uh, then then you settle. I, I don't I don't see it that way. I think perhaps especially as um, our politics becomes more and more uh, fraught that uh, political philosophers have to be uh, quite attuned to, in a way the Rawls was, but again, that's not something I really understood at the time, quite attuned to the value of stability and the importance of weighing up the benefits of improved uh, distributive justice in particular um, against uh, dangers involved in, in any kind of radical change. This is not very enlightening, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm simply agreeing with you that that tension is definitely there in the conventionalist view. And it, um, it's something that you have to avoid uh, while at the same time being aware that there is, there is real danger um, that comes from complete collapse of some of, uh, particularly of our political institutions. Right. So one, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, and, and this takes me to something else that you've written about more recently, which is uh, how we should understand private laws, language of rights, wrongs, and obligations. Um, so in, in, in this more recent work, you've stressed a lot the idea that private laws language of right and wrong is purely artificial and that the wrongs that, you know, the law of torts or law of contracts recognize are purely formal wrongs. So what do you mean by these ideas of, of the artificial nature of private laws morality and the purely formal nature of private laws wrongs? Yeah. So it's, is it, it does connect to what we were just talking about, but I hadn't noticed that connection. So thanks. Um, because you might think that challenging the normal way people would understand um, the wrongs of private law in the way that I do, and I'll flesh that out in a minute, itself could seem sort of unnecessarily destabilizing. Um, and so on that, I make the opposite call. I think that the problem of um, everyday libertarianism is tied up with the way we understand what kinds of wrongs can be committed within the private law. And so that's why I think it's important to point out that the wrong of breach of contract in the absence of reliance, even the wrong of theft in some contexts, um, is purely formal. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, it's a formal rule in the sense that you can't understand it just by reading it straight. So if, for example, a judge says breach of contract is a wrong, you might think, oh, well, the reason why we're doing something about it is because it's wrong to do that, right? If the rule has to be read formally rather than substantively, I would say, 
yes, it says it's a wrong at the surface of the law, but we can't understand what that means without looking at the point of the rule. And the point of the rule is not going to be clear from its surface. The point of the rule has to be understood instrumentally. So my favorite example, and now you teach contract law, I hope you uh, sometimes mention Mansfield in Pillins and Rose versus Van Meyer and Hopkins. The best where, case on consideration. The best case on consideration where he says in the 18th century, I take it that the ancient doctrine of consideration was for the sake of evidence only. And there he is, the brilliant judge, saying, it says that you need an exchange, but I assume that they can't, that we didn't really mean by that, that exchanges matter. I assume that the reason we want an exchange is that it gives us evidence. And in this case, since it was a written promise between merchants, we've got plenty of evidence from elsewhere. So don't worry about it. As you know, he was overruled on that case. Um, but that's a great example of a formal rule where it doesn't, uh, where the rule doesn't wear its rationale on its face. You have to explain it in some other terms. That's what I think about um, uh, breach of contract itself. The reason why we enforce a contract, uh, especially one where there's no reliance involved, is not that there's some kind of right to performance on the part of the promisee. It's that the system as a whole is beneficial. And so if there's a wrong done to the promisee in a kind of acute phrase, I call it a purely formal wrong. It's only a wrong as a sort of a, a, a surface phenomenon of the system, but it's not a wrong in the sense that the system is picking up on and enforcing or protecting uh, independently existing rights. Now, what has that got to do with the politics? As I say, I think if we thought about private law in this way where we understood that it is, in a sense, up, for, up to us as a, as a society to figure out how all this should go, and that goes for property, contract, tax, the whole, as you said before, the whole set of institutions, it would be, I think, being optimistic, it might open up the possibility of a more sensible discussion about what would adjust uh, total set of economic and legal institutions look like, in particular um, in the realm of tax. So let me put my question this way. So let's say I am a judge reading your work. And you're telling me, look, when we say that a breach of contract is wrong, we don't really mean that, right? <laughs> We're just mm -hmm. creating this formal rule that. Uh, allows us to capture a sufficiently large type of case that if we decided by reading it in that way, it will lead to good outcomes or something like that. So the practice works if we treat breach of contract as a wrong, but we don't actually think it's a wrong. Or when we say that uh, you have a right to obtain the performance of the contract, we don't actually mean that. Well, there's a whole Holmesian discussion to be had about yeah. that, but... but how should judges think about this? Because it seems to me at some point they have to assume this kind of dual uh, mentality or a compartmentalization in their minds, right? Uh, and I think, I, I always remember, I think this is Bernard Williams critiquing 
some rural utilitarians. Uh, this is something my wife Marcella mentioned recently to me in a, in a different context. But but it's basically this idea that maybe judges would have to be of two minds when they're deciding contract law or private law disputes, which is to say they they would have to treat the surface rule as something serious, even though they know that it is not. Yeah. Do you worry about that? Do you think there's a like a problem of lack of publicity or that they would have to be either deceiving the audience or self-deceit or, or involved in some form of self-deceit in order to be able to carry out the role as a judge involved in this practice that requires treating these rules as serious rules, but at the same time, not treating it as more serious than it should be. Yeah. Uh, yeah do you worry about that as that kind of acoustic separation? Yeah, I don't worry about it. Um, this is an area that I think you and I have different views about, Felipe, but I, I, I've always thought it's perfectly possible for a judge, and maybe it's because I read a lot of English decisions when I was doing my law degree in Australia, and it was common enough for a judge to say, this is an absurd rule, but my role is to apply the rule despite it having terrible consequences. I call upon the legislature to change it, right? And so they were perfectly able to see that the, the justification for the rule might be lost as circumstances change. Usually it was absurd given new circumstances or it was a applied to kinds of cases that wouldn't have been uh, thought of when the rule was originally developed by the courts. Um, they were perfectly willing to um, talk the talk of an instrumental justification of rules, um, but see their own role as constrained. Um, now, of course, it was in the common law this paradoxical because um, they do change the law. It doesn't isn't all left to the legislature. So there's a there's a question of, um, you know, when that constraint is is lifted. But I don't know. I've just it just doesn't seem to me to be that difficult to think. And I, I you know, I think reading Richard Posner, who I actually quite in I quite admire as a judge because. He will usually try and justify a decision um, in two ways. <laughs> One is he'll say, this is what it ought to be, and he'll give you a kind of a textbook argument about economic analysis of law. But then he will do a conventional legal reasoning kind of story as well. He, he doesn't, in, for the most part, uh, unlike some other economically minded judges, he doesn't, for the most part, say, this is how it ought to be, therefore it is like this. So I think a judge can very well understand his or her role as being to apply the rules for the most part without um, questioning their justification, um, understanding that um, they, they require a justification and the justification may not be obvious from the surface content of the rules. Um, the surface content of the rules may suggest a substantive um, or a direct, a direct link 
between the notion of a right in, in a legal rule and a moral right. The, the surface rule might suggest that. I don't think you have to believe that in order to, um, to be able to go on. Um, actually, as I'm talking, I'm realizing, I think this is close to what you think. What, if we have a disagreement, you, you're, you're perhaps inclined to think that the judges should be more fully constrained than I would be inclined to think. But I think you agree, I I hope I remember correctly, (laughs) that it's entirely possible for a judge to act in this constrained way, knowing that with a different hat on, if they were asked to write the code or something, um, everything would be open. Yes, that's that's what I thought. But the more I teach contracts, the less I think that I think that anymore. (laughs) Ah, well, that's... (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah, when, when you were mentioning this figure of the judge noting what the rule is and noting their disagreement on independent grounds and yeah. then applying it, yeah, yeah there, there are plenty, plenty of good examples of that. So so as you said, Posner, so Posner has this 2207 decision, which I think is uh, Litronic Industries, yeah, where he basically says, these are the three approaches to Section 2207 of the UCC. This is the one I like, but it's yeah. not the one I should apply. Yeah, yeah, um, great. And, and it's terrifically clear. He, he lays yes. it all out and he lays out the legal institutional argument for why he has to apply the other one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, unlike uh, um, uh, Judge Easterbrook in yes. OCD. Yeah. Yes. But we yes. don't have to. Easterbrook that. is like the, the, the example of the judge going from first principles without yes. looking at, at the rules. Yeah. Um, Yes, it's it's interesting. I well, I don't know what I think anymore about this, but uh, I think and it's interesting. Say, if I may ask you, when you say I'm no longer convinced that it's true, what's the it there that the judge has to be uh, a formalistic, formalistically constrained? Yes. Okay. Yes, I think I think that that view I had is basically my civil law mentality still struggling mm-hmm. against the common law. Right. Um, right. But I think, yeah. So, so I think today, if I think who's a good common law judge, I don't think it's the one that stays kind of uh, formalistically in the application of the rule because that's just not how the common law works. Right. Uh, but you could so, still prefer in your ideal world something closer to the civilian um, formalistic system. Oh, yes. With, with all yeah. due respect to my American listeners, I think this yes. legal system is insane <laughs> i mean the fact that you can't get a straight answer on what the law is for any problem without spending five days on west law i think is just proof yeah. Yeah. of, of yeah. the fact that the legal system wouldn't be this, designed like this from like scratch but but still it has certain virtues i mean one of the virtues is that it transforms case by case adjudication into a much more interesting exercise Oh, it's much much more interesting to teach. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and, much more interesting and, to teach. Much more transparent yeah. regarding the kind of foundational questions, and I think that's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but but moving on to the last question, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you've you know you've written about moral philosophy. You've written about private law theory, and you have also written about general jurisprudence. And in general jurisprudence. There are two things that I, I, I take from your work as very uh, significant for you. So one is the fact that we disagree about the nature of law and that 
we can keep talking about this for a long time, but we will mm -hmm. not reach agreement. It seems that the debate is as a stalemate that in fact, this is particularly something you mentioned in, in your more recent work, that that we we actually have different concepts of law, depending on who you ask. In, a, in, a, in the same society, there might be different mm -hmm. concepts of law at play. And you were also very keen to highlight that despite the fact that we disagree about this, it might have important political and moral implications, right? Mm -hmm. um, so do you, do you think something similar goes on in private law that, you know, Kantians and legal economists or conventionalists and non-conventionalists can talk endlessly, but that they will not reach any agreement, that it's just a yeah. kind of type of bedrock dispute that cannot be solved through philosophical argument and further conceptual elucidation? And do you think the political stakes are also significant? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, so I think that the prospects for agreement in the case of what is law and I know you know this, but the, the disagreement is essentially between positivists and non-positivists, those who think that what the law is is partly determined by moral considerations and those who think it can't be, that's contrary to the nature of law. I think the prospects for agreement there are extremely slim because we don't have very much else to refer to <laughs> to sort of move us closer together. That is, we're really just, it really is an argument of the yes, it is, no, it isn't variety. Um, and it's, it's quite hard to know, to see how you can move the two sides closer together. Any of the, the best arguments have been given by Joseph Raz and Ronald Dworkin, but they each make use of premises that would just be rejected um, from the outset by the other side. I think in the case of moral argument, it's just so much richer a domain, so many, it is an endless supply of further examples or possible principles or, um, and I, and I do acknowledge that moral disagreement can be intractable. Um, talk to Peter Singer about any, any issue and he will give you the utilitarian answer. And it, it's just clear that that's, that's going to be the way it is. Um, equally, there are people equally unmovable on a non-consequentialist side. I think, taking an example, my uh, former colleague, Francis Cam, um, these two people are never going to agree and they're not going to move closer to each other. I still think that there's a sense of the, there being a there there in the case of moral argument. Now, you didn't ask me about morality. You asked me about the concept of law or the nature of the law on the one hand and disputes about private law on the other. And that's interesting because I hadn't thought about that case because the dispute about private law is a dispute, partly a moral dispute, but it's also a dispute about the best way to understand a legal institution 
which is normative, but not only normative. So, but I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking on my feet here, Felipe, I, I would put disputes about private law um, more in the camp um, along with moral disputes, where I think it's just a rich field. Uh, um, there are so many things we can talk about which might move us closer together, whereas the dispute about the nature of law, is morality in or is morality out, um, remains um, remains sort of in comparison to the others, sort of uniquely sterile. I mean, it's, it's striking that at the end of his life, Dworkin essentially threw up his hands and said, I'm not interested in the question of the nature of law anymore. Um, all I'm interested in are moral questions. Um, so that, that, that you might think is incompatible with there being political significance to the debate. And that's the most paradoxical thing about my view about the nature of law. Right. If it's a thin thing, which seems to be just with no there there, how could it have political importance? Why don't we just forget it? And I think that the political importance comes up. Let me put it this way. It's contingent that it has political importance. And it, it, um, you could, for example, run um, Supreme Court, Senate confirmation hearings without using the, the question of, you know, what the law is. Um, you could just say, what do you think is the judge's role in um, interpreting the Constitution in order to reach a decision? And don't ever let somebody answer by saying, I must apply the law, because <laughs> right? that, that covers many sins, because it all depends on what you think the law is, right? So you just, this is the so-called eliminativist position that I associate with my colleague and your former teacher, Lewis Kornhauser, who, uh, and in some moods, I think he's right. He says, well, look, we can go on with much more transparency and clarity just by not talking about this anymore. We'll just talk about uh, issues that don't revolve, don't require the use of this uh, ambiguous, so it's basically what it is, this ambiguous word, law. Um, and I suppose my problem with that is it's not going to happen. Um, it's similar to some people who defend positivism by saying it would be better if we're all positivists. I used to do this. Yeah. I think it would be better if we're all positivists. But so what? what is, <laughs> since, when, since we're not all positivists, you know, sometimes in science, um, all scientists converge on using a term in a particular way. And they can all see the utility in having the one way of using it. And since they're not, it's not a political issue, they just all converge. I don't see that convergence happening um, in society as a whole, or even within, you know, the community of lawyers, uh, a convergence on one way of understanding uh, law. So I think we're stuck with it. And you know, one of my favorite things to point out about this whole debate is that Aristotle discusses this. So that means a long time ago, but where's it, where does he discuss it? In the rhetoric. <laughs> so he basically advises you to make an argument 
vaguely positivistic argument. If you if the law is on your side, the written law is on your side. Right. If it's not on your side, say, well, the true law is greater than the written law. And I think we're sort of still in that position. Um, you know, uh, I had essentially decided that I wasn't interested in that topic anymore, but I recently read a manuscript by David Dysonhouse, who's reread this whole tradition, and big magnum opus coming out. So let me put a plug in for your listeners to keep an eye out for Dysonhouse's new book, because he's trying to um, reread Hobbes, Kelvin, Hart, and find something that really does matter in this whole dispute. And it's basically the idea of legality as a special form of political authority. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with him, but it 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 uh, it's revived the field a little bit as far as I'm concerned. Excellent. Well, Liam, uh, I wanted to thank you again for this really interesting conversation. It's like a throwback to... Uh, <laughs> my years in New York. So thanks again for, for being here. Well, it's, it's a pleasure. I wish you were here in person in my office, as you have been on many occasions, but this is a good second best. And thanks so much for, for giving me the chance to chat.